Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Hello everybody. Thank you for listening to our latest episode of Anthropotamus. Today we're here with Dr. Marcelo Moromelo, assistant professor from Universidad Federal de Bahia. And hopefully I said that correctly and didn't just totally butcher that name. Uh, we're here talking with him about his article, Dutch Spirits, East Indians and Hindu Deities in Guyana, Contests Over Land. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me here. So, going to be a little honest here, go on a little bit of a rant. I had no idea where Guyana was. When I started reading this, I'm not going to lie, I had to Google it. Uh, I think I was familiar with probably every country around it. And then I'm reading it and I'm like, why is there Dutch people in South America? I am so confused because we always hear about Spain and um, the British taking over. But we barely, we never really hear about the Dutch. But then after I thought about it, I was like, well, Spain used to have control of the Netherlands until, you know... The Netherlands were like, you're really bad at finances. We're going to become our own country. And then I'm wondering why, why are there Indians in South America? Mm-hmm. I had to like, I, when I first Googled Guyana, I was unsure if I had looked at the map correctly. And I had to repeatedly look at the map to make sure I was looking at South America. But it was a very interesting article. And I definitely learned something when I read it. I'm glad to hear that. So before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you got um, interested into this topic? Okay, sure. Well, uh, my entire formation was in Brazil. Uh, My undergrad in social sciences at the Federal University of Rio Grande do Sul. I got my master in my master's in social anthropology at the State University of Campinas and my PhD at the National Museum at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. So uh, I conducted all my studies at public and free universities in Brazil. Uh, that means that uh, we, do, we do not pay for any fee to study, and in my case, I receive scholarships and grants that allow me to go to Guyana. I think that's important to stress this, given the characteristics of the Brazilian educational system. Uh, At that period, I started my PhD in 2009. It was a different, although recent, moment in the history of Brazil given that uh, the government's investments in public universities were much more common and consistent, allowing people like me to do research abroad. Well, as for Guyana and the spirits, uh, actually, I did not plan to conduct research in that country. I had a previous background doing research with maroon communities in Brazil, uh, black rural communities, and when I was admitted at my in, in my PhD in 2009, I decided that it was time to do something else. And eventually, and given uh, unexpected circumstances, my supervisor, uh, Olivia Maria Gomes da Cunha, suggested that I could go to Guyana. 
She was doing research in the Caribbean and supervising many students in the Caribbean. So I decided, okay, let's do it. So I did, I did it and I went to Guyana without having any consistent knowledge about the place. When I arrived there in 2010 for exploratory fieldwork, and I have to say that I was able to go to Guyana thanks to Wazir Mohammed. He's a sociologist uh, originally from Guyana, and he did all the arrangements for me. And when I, I was living with his family uh, in the region of Demerara, and since my first days in the country, when I realized that I was not so fluent in English as I thought before, and also when I realized that I had to learn a second language, the Creole language of the country, uh, I, I had really uh, hard times to communicate myself with people. But of course that I was trying to listen what they were saying. And since the first day in the country, people were speaking quite spontaneously about the spirits of the dead and witchcraft. Then, uh, so I arrived in Guyana on Thursday, on Saturday I traveled across, across the country to attend a marriage, and it was the first time that I saw the tree that I mentioned at the beginning of my article, the tree, the tree that seeps blood each time somebody threats its in integrity. Well, to summarize, when uh, Given that I heard so much about spirits and uh, witchcraft, I decided to ask people more about that. And people usually told me something like this. Okay, if you want to know more about spirits or, it, or witchcraft, you should go to Kali people, for they deal with these sort of things. Kali people uh, is the way that the Guyanese in general refer to the devotees of the Hindu goddess Kali, right? So Kali worship in, in Guyana is a heterodox Hindu sect in which healing rituals are fundamental, right? Kali uh, worship was transplanted to Guyana at that period, British Guyana, by Indian indentured laborers in the 19th century. And it involves the manifestation of Hindu deities, possession, animal sacrifice, and healing practices. Over time, I realized, and after I decided to do research with Kali devotees, uh, more specifically at the temple of Blairmont in the region of Burbies, I realized that many people attended the temple because of the Dutch spirits. So that's basically how I had the chance to know Kali uh, worship and meet the spirits of the colonial time, the Dutch spirits. So could you briefly explain to our listeners the ethnic background or composition of Guyana and the history of uh, East Indians entering into the country? Of course. Well, Guyana is a small country. It has almost 800,000 people living in the country nowadays. Uh, there are millions of Guyanese living, uh, living abroad. But uh, Guyana has three main regions, uh, Essequibo, Demerara, and Burbese. 
These three regions were three different colonies ruled by the Dutch until the first years of the 19th century, when the British took over these territories. Uh, after some years, in 1831, the British unified Essequibo, Demerara, and Berbice, creating British Guyana. So, in the coastal region of uh, Guyana, which is situated below sea level, plantations, especially sugar plantations, were established, and their whole operation depended on enslaved labor. After 1833, uh, the British Crown sought alternatives to supply planters with a cheap workforce after the Emancipation Act, right? So, in this way, men and women from such places as Ilha da Madeira in Portugal, China, Africa, and also from neighboring Caribbean countries were recruited as indentured laborers to work side by side or even replacing the descendants of African Guyanese uh, in the plantations. But overall, India was the leading supplier of indentured laborers to Guyana as well as to places as Trinidad. Indian indentured labor lasted from 1838 to 1917 in almost 200,000, uh, people uh, disembarked in the country. So over time, the descendants of Indian indentured laborers became the majority of the population. That's the reason uh, that Guyana has this complex multi-ethnic composition. The country is known officially as the land of six people, uh, namely Amerindians, Chinese, Africans, East Indians, Europeans, and Portuguese, which are not considered as white, neither as Europeans. It's very interesting. So, in your article, you mentioned that the tree, the tree that you mentioned earlier, that it rests in a Dutch spot. Can you explain to our listeners what that means? Okay, of course. Well, in Guyana, uh, w when somebody say, for instance, okay, uh, it was a Dutch, that means that it was a Dutch spirit, either of a man or of a woman, right? So uh, basically, Dutch spot is a place which is inhabited by one or more spirits of Dutch colonizers, right? I remind that uh, Guyana was a Dutch colony before the British took over. So according to a narrative which is widespread in the country, when the British took over uh, the colonies from the Dutch, the British were quite cruel with the Dutch and they killed uh, dozens, uh, actually hundreds of Dutch people and many Dutch men and women decided to kill themselves instead of struggling with the British. Also, many people in Guyana say that the Dutch did not receive any kind of funeral, so they became uh, vengeful spirits, right? So uh, these spirits currently they are particularly attached to places in which sugar plantations once operated, right? They are considered in the coastal region of the country as the masters of the land or boundary masters. 
They claim ownership and sovereignty over the land, and this condition grants them certain rights, certain rights towards the land, especially uh, in regard to offerings. And Guyanese in general say that they re really own the places. So they require offerings and they demand compensation from their human cohabitants. But when they are not at peace, they possess and attack people, disturbing their lives. Sometimes uh, they even have, they, they even assault sexually people in their dreams. They cause sickness, mental confusion, compulsive desires, and also they precipitate suicides, right? Guyana has the, one of the uh, higher uh, per capita rate of suicide. Uh, I think that's the third or maybe the fourth in the world. And many Guyanese say that the spirit's influence ha have a role on this. So that spot basically is a place inhabited by Dutch spirits. And there is an article also from Brackett Williams, which was a she's a major influence for me about the Dutch spirit with the Dutch spirits, which was published in 1990, I think. How common are Dutch spots? Because honestly, it's making me never want to visit Guyana. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's quite common because uh, people say that they are attached to sugar plantations and there were several plantations that operated in Guyana in the past. There are some sugar factories operating right now so it's quite common especially in the regions of Burbies and Essequibo. It's interesting that this almost historical anger that is uh, so so prevalent that they're attributing things like suicide rates to it and there still seems to be a collective scar on the people from that even people who weren't originally from the same culture. Yes, I agree. Uh, 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 well, uh, I think that we can maybe formulate a kind of anthropology of history instead of historical anthropology. Maybe it's worthwhile to explore what people in the ground understand by history. And I think that in this case, uh, Guyana has a really recent history of colonial uh, rule. The country became independent from the, Brit from the Britons only in 1966. But I think that this, the pervasiveness of these discourses and narratives about a distant past, I mentioned in here the narrative that conceived the birthing, so to say, of or the raising of these spirits as a consequence of struggles between British and Dutch colonizers is a kind of historical memory about the unsolved legacies of colonialism and also about the violence that characterizes any kind of colonial enterprise. So in, on the one hand, we can conceive these narratives as a kind of historical approach to the colonial past. And also there are, there are, all, there are these people that 
think that the spirits can influence people to commit suicide. It's, uh, I would say, in a very uh, general general way that the colonial history, the colonial legacy is not only there in the discursive plan, but also it's embodied by people. I feel like that might be a good transition to the next question. Um, you use the term inheritance in your article. In regards to spirits and family traditions, can you define what that means in this particular context? Yes, of course. Uh, well, uh, inheritance ha uh, has at least two senses, right? On the one hand, uh, inheritance refers to rituals performed to Hindu deities that were worshipped by the ancestors of Indian indentured laborers, both in India and in the Caribbean. Uh, thus, in in inheritance is related to a domestic group and to a genealogical regime of descendants. Uh, it's considered by many Hindu families in Guyana uh, mandatory to praise, worship, and perform rituals to these family deities, as sometimes it's said. But although, although it's mandatory, it's not static or its continuity and adaptability dependent on how, in the past, Indian indentured laborers managed to both keep the traditions, as they say, uh, in a different environment, uh, Guyana in this case, and also how they manage to deal with the power of Dutch spirits, for instance. As one interlocutor says, the priest, Bayo, uh, he told me that, okay, the Dutch were here before the Indians arrived, so we inherited that. So over time, and with the repetition of offerings to the Dutch, the Indians in the past, they did that in order to protect themselves from spiritual attacks. Eventually, these rituals were incorporated into family traditions. So they became part of an inheritance too. You mentioned that the madrasas claim that the Kali worship is the most faithful of Hindu religious traditions. In your own opinion, do you find this to be true or has Kali worship been influenced by other beliefs um, in comparison to Sanatan Dharma? Okay, well, just some background firstly. Uh, Indian indentured laborers, they, uh, they embarked uh, basically in two ports. In India, in Madras, now Chennai, in South India, and especially in Calcutta, in North India. So, uh, Kali worship is associated and is defined both by outsiders as well as by insiders as a South, as a South Indian Hindu tradition, right? which is considered distinct, different from Sanatan Dharma, which is the dominant and self-proclaimed Orthodox, Brahmanic, and North Indian Hindu sect of Guyana. 
Well, Kali worship is highly stigmatized in Guyana. Uh, for many Sanatan Dharma members, for instance, it's not Hindu at all. Uh, so uh, given this scenario, I would say that the efforts of Kali devotees to legitimize their religion invokes, among other things, claiming that Kali worship is an ancient Hindu tradition with strong roots in India and essentially Hindu, right? Uh, in, Gaia, in, in the case of Guyana also, they claim that the most faithful tradition, Hindu tradition, because, because they claim, or, or better saying, that they say with proud that they did not convert to Christianity and they did not stigmatize some practices as Sanatan Dharma members did. So I'm, as for your question, I'm pretty sure that both Kali worship and Sanatan Dharma were influenced by other religious traditions. Although there is a lack of detailed historical studies about the transformation of Hindu practices in Guyana and in the Caribbean as a whole, I'm also pretty sure that Afro-Caribbean religions, uh, religious traditions influence Kali, Kali worship. But at the same time, it's important to, rem to remind that practices such as sacrifice, animal sacrifice and possession have been common uh, within Hinduism for thousands of years, right? In Guyana, of course, that Hinduism changed uh, with this conglomeration of peoples of different cultural backgrounds in Guyana. I would say that Hinduism, again, has responded to social influences, but not by closing its doors, right? And here I'm borrowing this expression from Hilda Cooper's work in South Africa, but by extending both its dogma and its ritual. So I would say that in, in Guyana and in Kali worship, more specifically, many practices were reformulated and there, there was an openness to different religious traditions, right? But I would say that uh, I also would add that for Hindus and for my interlocutors in particular, uh, there is only one supreme de uh, deity which manifests itself in different and countless forms. So the divinity in, Hindu, in, in this Hindu tradition is at the same time one and manifold. I think that would be a very interesting research to get into to see how it's uh, Hinduism has transformed from India and transformed as it migrated into South America. Yeah, I agree. Religion's transformation over time as it changes geographically is always very interesting because you have so many blendings, so many added uh, perspectives that uh, you pulled into it. So I'm interested in understand how people in practice define what they conceive as religion. So you have a very interesting, um, I don't know, story. Story is not the word I want to use, but I can't think of the word I want to use right now. But you discuss the possession of a young girl named Jennifer by a Dutch spirit. So, you know, she she tried to go and have the spirit removed. Offerings were made twice to appease a spirit. 
but she was never healed, healed and ultimately committed suicide. Um, is there an explanation? I mean, would I use the term priests? I don't know which term I would use for this, but why the spirit seemed to never be appeased and never left. I see. Well, uh, Jennifer is an invented mm -hmm. name. Uh, her name in reality was another one. And I was really close of her. She was a young woman, single. Her dream was to migrate to New York, as many Guyanese did it and do it. But when I met her, she was suffering a lot. She was a spirit, that spirit was, was attacking her since she was a child, right? And sexually assaulting her. Eventually, she went to a, at least two Kali temples and the, the priests perform what is called a boundary, boundary work. Uh, basically, it's a ritual toward land to make offerings to the Dutch, to the spirit that lives and owns a place, but didn't work, and she committed suicide. So I, as I try to describe in my piece, there are different versions and explanations to why this happened, why she was unable to rid herself of the spirit. Some people say that actually there were several spirits attacking her, not just one, and there was a lot of gossip too. I remind that she was a young woman, single in a country as Guyana, and allegedly she was having affairs with married men. So there was a lot of stigmatization also, right? But many people told me that she could not keep her devotion, as they say, properly. Basically what happens when you are attacked, when you are subject to a Dutch spirit, you, you go to a Kali temple and you have to do devotion, as they say. That means that you have to attend the temple for at least nine weeks, you should perform rituals, make offerings to the deities, and eventually some of them will manifest themselves into your body, right? So it takes some time to develop the manifestation, as they say. The, the, the Hindu deities, they, they manifest uh, more or less fully on people, depending on the devotion. So for many people, she was unable to keep the devotion and to develop the manifestation of a Hindu deity. If she, was, if, if she su succeeded on that, she would become much more protected because a deity would be in her body, so to say. But it didn't work. Some people say because she lacked this discipline. Other people said that it was because of the spirit. The spirit prevented her of keeping her devotion. While other people say that the priest did not perform the rituals properly. And also some people say, uh, remind that Dutch spirits are essentially uh, liars, right? They, they make false promises. They demand, they say that they are happy, but in reality they are not. They are deceitful. So... Uh, that's what I try to do. I try to describe this case, which is surrounded by gossips, 
doubts and different versions to address the topic of territorial sovereignty and how, in this case, East Indians or Indians, as they call themselves, and spirits compete uh, for the land. So different native versions or native conceptualizations of sovereignty and power over land. So that was my my basic intention in this case, and I tried to illustrate what I was arguing, uh, reconstructing a story, uh, Jennifer's story. It's very interesting, and it sounded as if her mental or spiritual struggles were rather quite exhausting and painful. Yes, indeed. Some people say that she became the wife of the spirit, so she did not die completely she became a spirit some people claim that that sounds fairly tragic makes me once again not want to go to guyana <laughs> sounds mm-hmm. horrible um, I'm, I'm sure it's a, i'm sure it's an interesting place but i think i'll pass <laughs> as well it's an interesting place uh a beautiful place uh not the not the beaches and it's not the caribbean as we know in <laughs> But uh, it's a nice place. The people uh, are very happy, and it's a country that's facing many transformations now because there were recent discoveries of oil. Mm. So Guyana will be one of the major producers of oil in the world. So you mentioned uh, that Dutch spots are associated with like a lot of the plantations. Um, do you, by chance in your research, did you notice that there was a higher rate of possession or spirituality um, in areas that have the plantations versus those that are at a greater distance? Definitely, yes. Uh, plantation areas, uh, for instance, uh, I did my research at Blairmont Settlement, and Blairmont uh, has uh, sugar factory operating until now. So there are lots of Dutch spirits. There are more trees which cannot be put down because the spirits live on there. And as I said, especially in the regions of Burbis and Esequibo, where many Dutch plantations existed before, there are th- these spirits are there. But these spirits, they can afflict people even at distance. Uh, I, uh, I, I, there is a colleague, uh, Shana Novak, from uh, Syracuse University. She works with uh, Guyanese in the region of Toronto, and min- many people there are afflicted by Dutch spirits. So that, that's another dimension of Kali worship. It's not only uh, a Hindu tradition that was transla- transplanted from India to the Caribbean, but also since the 1970s, especially many Guyanese migrated to places as uh, America and Canada, and some East Indians, especially the Madrasi, the South Indians, uh, the descendants of South Indians, they established temples, Kali temples, in New York, Toronto, Miami, and places like that. There, there is a, an important Kali temple in Brooklyn, is there anything else you'd like to discuss about the article that we haven't mentioned? 
No, I'm uh, I'm really glad that I had this opportunity. Uh, I just would add that one question that uh, I like. Uh, this whole process of writing in English, I'm Brazilian, my mother tongue is Portuguese. It was really interesting for me. It gave me new insights because I conducted my research in both in English and in Creolese, the Creole language. I present my dissertation was written in Portuguese, so there, so that's that's the first step on translation, so to say. And now I write in in a different language, which is not my mother tongue. So I'm learning a lot in this process. Say something about the fact that English is a strong language in Talawasad's sense right while in portuguese i wouldn't be able to reach some audiences because of this inequality of yeah. languages true all right thank you again marcelo for being with us today thank you so much and I would just like to remind our listeners that we do now have a website, www.anthropotamus.com, and we'll see you next time. Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.